Good, thank you. Gene, are you going away? Oh, yes. Surely. You can. Come on up. Hey, VJ. Good to see you. Help yourself. I met, just happened to meet Miss Marie Flickinger uh, out at the of our publisher of our paper here, and uh, I advertised, and I just happened to be in there. She knows I'm a member of this church. And she said, I want to tell you something. Said, one of our parishioners was in ICU at Southeast Memorial Hospital. And I was very concerned about him. He'd had a heart attack. And he said, and I went up to the, to the ICU, and I believe it's maybe on the top floor of the hospital. But while she was there, she said, there I was, so concerned about this person. And I looked out the window. And he said, there was an unobstructed view of your cross. And she said, what a testimony to the people of this community and certainly to the people in the hospital, in the ICU, when they may be looking at life and death to know that God is looking out for them. Thank you, brother. Blessing, blessing, blessing. Well, well, well. Wonderful to be with you again. We are in uh, Psalm 24 today because... Uh, Brother Chuck, as I mentioned to you, demanded uh, Psalm 23, and I gave in because I can't stand to see a grown man cry. So uh, I gave him the easy psalm, and I shall take the more demanding one. <laughs> psalm 24 is where we are. We know it's a psalm of David because it says so. And... Uh, Guys, I hate to do this, but it's, hey, Mike and Wes, it worked in the last two hours. Something got changed. I'm getting real bad feedback up here, so it's pounding in my ears. Is, is, it, are, is it the, mo did, did, was anything changed from the last two hours, or is it just my attitude? <laughs> uh, it's probably my attitude. Do you know Wes? This is Wes Holloman. Oh, hey, Look, <laughs> Wes is, uh, I unplugged that one, and, uh. Wes is uh, responsible for, gee, I don't think it's that. Come over here, Wes, and speak, and then you'll see. Hello. <laughs> Are you hearing anything? Like a uh, reverb? Is it like a reverb or something? We'll, we'll check it back there. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> it's a good man right here. <laughs> Thank you. That's a, Listen, Wes is responsible for us being evicted um, from our prior location. And so uh, if you have any difficulties, really with anything, um, send an email to Wes. <laughs> yeah, whatever ails you. I think it's better now. Thank you. I don't know what it was, but... Maybe you need to leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and we come to church for encouragement. We want to lift each other up. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. Maybe exact. Thank you, Bobby. 
Miss Helen, we have a seat for you right up here. <laughs> right up here. Look at this. You can sit by these and you can see the whole thing. There's not much to see. You're not missing much. <laughs> Is there anything else? Does your elbow bother you? You know, did you have like a bad hair day? What could, you know, we're here to help. Thank you, social team, for providing last night. The only thing is we didn't have enough ice cream. Wow, there was enough for the entire Israeli army. Thank you all for doing that. Always fun to get together. And, uh, we're sorry, this is the social team, and we're sorry that the anti-social members in our class were not there. But something for everyone. We have a social team. We, got an we should have an anti-social team. But they'll never get together. So we're in Psalm 24, Psalm of David, I mentioned. Uh, it's a song. All the psalms are. It was sung. This particular psalm could be called a psalm of ascent, a special category of psalms, consisting of songs sung as people ascended, they went up, to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship God. Some came from miles around. The temple was built on an elevated platform in Jerusalem. It was, in that day, it was marble and gold. Sun would shine, reflect off it. You could see it for miles around. Quite a prominent feature on the horizon. And when worshipers were going to go up to the temple to meet with and worship God, they did not take it lightly was quite an experience, and on the way, so as to prepare their hearts for the worship experience, before they got into and through the gates of the temple, they sang. And what we're about to see, these ten verses, is part of the liturgy of ancient Israel. It was sung responsively. So there would be a song leader who would start out with one of the verses, we're not sure which, and then the congregation would chime in as if it was the chorus, and they'd go back and forth. And they were reminding themselves of what they were doing and who they were going to worship. And so they started out singing what's contained in verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Could you tell me why they found that to be a good starting point as they made their ascent up to the temple to worship God? Yes, sir. It puts everything in perspective right off the bat. Absolutely. Well said. Any other thoughts? Why'd they start? Th you really captured it for sure. Anything else you want to observe about it? They were reminding themselves of the sovereignty of God who possessed, who had ownership over the entire earth, all it contained, and the people therein. They were reminding themselves that they were not self-generated nor self-sustained, but they owed their beginning and their present state of being to Creator God. It was He they were going to worship. They reminded themselves that the earth would have no existence apart from 
the creator of the earth. They reminded themselves not to worship matter because God preceded matter. They would not worship the earth. They would worship the God who created the earth. They were reminding themselves as they sang. They also reminded themselves that this God is different than all others represented in surrounding communities in their day. Many people groups had gods, usually um, characteristic of the locale. So this town would have a particular god and the neighboring town would have a particular god. One town would say to the other, hey, we got a pretty cool god. You want to add him to the gods you worship. So many places worshiped a multiplicity of so-called gods. But what these people are singing uh, states the truth that there's only one God. We're not worshiping a multiplicity of gods. We're not looking to add to the true God other gods. They pale in comparison. Only he is the creator. And the earth and all it contains and all the people are his. They were reminding themselves that they were not their own. They were possessed by another. They did not have ownership of themselves. They were owned by creator God. They might have reminded themselves, you know, it's kind of a drag to get up on Saturday <laughs> morning, Shabbat, and to go up to the temple. It's hot out here. It's crowded. People are bringing their cranky kids. Uh, and some of those people I don't like at all. What a good day to sleep in. But then they're reminding themselves, no, we're not our own. We don't make decisions on that basis. We make decisions on the basis of what would be pleasing to the God who created us. And he's pleased with us gathering together in spite of all the logistical difficulties therein. He's pleased with us carving out the time, uh, separating from the world, being drawn together as a group of worshipers and acknowledging he's creator God. So they're singing all this and they're reminding themselves. In fact, they make a statement that really flies in the face of today's radical environmentalism. They make the statement, the earth is the Lord's. They didn't say the earth is the Lord. Two different things, aren't they? The earth is the Lord's. It is caused by him. Therefore, we worship the cause, not the effect. But today's radical environmentalists have found a new religion. It's called going green. And you attribute to the earth personality. You call it Mother Earth. You make the trees and the waters and everything as if they have personality. They're, in, they're, they're things, they're material. So you don't worship the God who created them, you worship them, in essence. You skip over Father God in order to worship Mother Earth. That's called a false religion. The earth is the Lord's is one thing. The earth is the Lord. Equating God with the earth is an entirely different thing. Now, when it comes to the care of the environment, we ought to be on the forefront. Because we know since the environment, since the earth is the Lord's, he gave it to us as a gift to sustain us. It is subordinate to us we created in the likeness and image of God are over and above the environment the environment actually has no purpose except to provide a place that we can inhabit subdue and be fruitful in 
Nonetheless, it ought to be cared for and acknowledged. We ought not to be wasters of it. I've tried to raise my boys so as to turn off the light in the room they no longer are occupying. I failed miserably. <laughs> but when I go to their homes, I turn on every light. I can <laughs> yeah, we should not be wasteful consumers of the earth, for sure. But I'm talking about environmentalism as an alternate religion. I'm talking about a deification of the earth. I'm talking about this foolish, deceptive notion that we can save the world by going green. Well, you could if the problem was an external environmental pollution, but that's not. The problem is internal environmental pollution. I'm sin sick, so I don't need a new, more efficient light bulb I need a savior. Can you see what a subtle distraction radical environmentalism is from the real problem uh, that plagues us today? But ancient Israel knew right away the earth is the Lord's. It's subordinated to him. I find evidence of him in the earth. So I move from the earth to the worship of him. But today's radical environmentalists don't find evidence of creator God in the earth. They find God to be the earth. Hey, could I tell you something maybe you didn't think of? Trees don't have feelings. I'm telling you, I pruned one the other day, didn't cry or anything. <laughs> Sheer and utter nonsense. Please don't elevate the stuff of uh, the natural physical world to the level of human beings created in the likeness of God. Doggone it, we can't even find alternative means of fuels because radical, crazy environmentalists don't want us to interfere with the tsetse fly who lives there. <laughs> it's crazy. But God gave us these things to subdue and be in control of. And he gave this, us these things for our own sustenance. So that's radical environmentalism. I'm not talking about good stewardship of the environment. Sure, why have a gas-guzzling monster when you can get a more economical means of transportation? Sure, I understand that. Absolutely. Uh, that's a whole lot different than the religion of environmentalism, which, by the way, so many, interesting, uh, so many Hollywood personalities are involved in. I'll share with you some of this if you have nothing to do Wednesday night. And if I have nothing to do, I'll show up. Wednesday night. I want to just talk to you how so many famous, wealthy uh, people are giving themselves to causes like the environment. You've got to look for something bigger than yourself. And if you, can't, you don't want Father God, you've got to find Mother Earth. Barbara Streisand's coming out of retirement after a whole lot of years, like a dozen years. She's going on tour to rally support and attention to the danger facing us today called climate change. That is not the danger facing the earth today. The danger facing the earth is the corruption of the earth by our sinful proclivities and the impending judgment of a holy God. That's pretty dangerous and precarious. The fact that this climate change, if there even is, come on. So anyway, verse 1 was important, right? They were reminding themselves who's in first place. And it's not the trees, it's not the polarized cap, it's not the whatever. It's God. They go on in verse 2, he, for he has founded it, the earth. He's founded the earth, look, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Whoa, can you do that? 
That would be a cool thing. I'd like to see you do that. I would like to see you establish something very stable on a very unstable foundation. Please show me that. I would like to see, I mean, God established the immense, the enormity of the earth, which is stable, on a very unstable foundation, water. Can you pull that off? They reminded themselves not only that there's one creator God, but that which he, he has created, he created in a way nobody could duplicate. Can you pull that off? You can't. No, you can't. You can't pull that off. You can't even establish yourself, most of you, in water. It's called drowning. <laughs> he established the entire earth on the unstable surface of H2O. They're saying, whoa, that's the God we're going up to worship. You see? Now they get to the point where they say, yeah, but wait a second. We've now in song, remember this is all in song. We've now persuaded ourselves how great he is. That's good. But what's bad about it is that in the process of reminding ourselves of how great he is, we realize how non-great we is. How big he is, how small we are. And so they're wondering, how in the world are we going to go visit him? How do you go uninvited into his presence? So that in song, they actually ask this question. Look, verse 3. They're singing this. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who has sufficient standing with this kind of God that they'd be able to stand and just not melt in his presence? Who could casually go up? To be near him. Who qualifies? Who could ascend to the hill of God where he's established his presence? Look, have you heard the word Shekinah? Hebrew Shekinah? It, it's the presence of God. His, his being. He said, Moses, build the temple. Not the way you want. Build it according to these stipulations. Why? Because every detail uh, reflects something of the character of God. He built it, and one of the compartments in it was a place called the Holy of Holies. You don't go in there. God says there, I will put my Shekinah glory. These people are, in, it was a symbol, a, a representation of his presence. These people are saying, who could go in there? Who could get close to a God like this? You know what? They knew um, that if you were unclean or defiled, you had to be cleansed. No unclean person could go up through the gates of the temple. So what they did was to build all around the temple something called mikvot, or in singular, a mikvah. It was, um, it was a baptistry, a mikvah. It's Hebrew word for gathering, as in waters. It was a gathering of waters of sufficient volume that a person of normal adult size could be entirely immersed by going into it. Uh, so you see the uh, practice of baptism by immersion is not a Baptist thing. It's not a Gentile thing. It's not a church thing. No need to thank me. <laughs> it's a Jewish thing. It's a Jewish thing. There, they were immersed in a mikvah as an indication of defilement. Ah, here's the difference. They said these waters represent the cleansing effect of the law of Moses. Well, that's a problem because the law can't clean you. 
the law points out how dirty you are. <laughs> the law's not a bar of soap, it's a mirror. The commandments are not a bar of soap, they don't clean you up, they just show you how dirty you, are, you is. So then when we move from that, remember I told you there's nothing new in the New Testament, it just gets clearer and more fully developed. Then when you move to the practice of baptism in the New Testament, we don't say it's the law that has given me right standing with God. We say it's the very Spirit of God, the Shekinah, glory of God in me, that's the cleansing agent. And we say, oh, I go into the water identifying with the burial of the Lord Jesus. I come up identifying with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He has cleansed me. Not the law, what the law could not do. He done did. See, so, so they ha you can go to Israel today, you see these mikvot all over the land. There were sufficient numbers of these around the temple precincts so that thousands could be baptized or immersed on any given occasion. So what they would do is they'd go down into it, they'd take a couple steps down. Nobody would baptize them. There would be elders observing to make sure it was done in an acceptable manner, but nobody would actually lay hands on them and dunk them. And they wouldn't go back. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm just telling you that's not how they did it. They came into the water standing straight up with their hands out in front or raised aloft, and they would baptize themselves. They'd go down, up, and then they would proceed up a flight of steps and out of the mikvah <laughs> bath. Then they would have folks assisting them to get dried off, just like today, and they'd make their way into the temple precincts. These people didn't knew they couldn't just lightly, casually charge into the presence of God. Look how big, look how great, look how holy he is. So they ask the question, who can stand in his presence? And they answer it in verse 4. He who has clean hands. Uh, that's kind of a, a poetic expression for... Um, Purity of conduct. Then it says, and a pure heart. That's an expression representing purity of motive, attitude. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. That's someone who knows truth, particularly the one true God. And has not sworn deceitfully. That's someone who's in control of his tongue. Who can ascend to the hill of God and stand in his presence? Someone whose conduct, someone whose motives, and someone whose words are pure, holy, and acceptable to God. See any problem with that? You know anyone like that? Lord Jesus. Yeah, only the Lord Jesus, Brenda's correct. Aside from him, do you know anyone like that? No, not those people and even less you people. <laughs> not any better. Who can demonstrate purity of conduct, purity of motive, and you're in control of your words? Come on, they get us in trouble all the time. We're not able to bridle the tongue. We say all kinds of stuff that gets us in trouble. So what does this mean? Let me offer something. Because these things are things which we in our own efforts are incapable of coming up with. Purity of conduct, purity of motive, absolute control of the tongue. It presumes these people who can ascend to the hill of the Lord who can confidently stand in his presence, have established a connection with him beforehand. 
And these things, these first four things are simply evidence of the fact that they already have a relationship with the God they're going to worship. These are divinely produced evidences of conversion. These are not humanly produced capabilities. James, faith without works is dead. Someone says, I have faith in Jesus. I mean, anytime they do a Gallup poll, what is it, 72% of America says I'm a Christian? No, they're not. Not in my neighborhood. Not yours. It's a profession. Uh, James says that kind of faith is dead if it isn't evidenced by works. Faith without works consistent with it, faith without works that proves the faith, is a dead faith. I think these people are showing works which give evidence of an internal faith in the God they're going to worship. Show you what I mean. Take a look at verse 5. It says, I got to find it. He, <laughs> this person, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his from the God of his salvation. The things of verse 4 didn't save him. The God of verse 5 saved him. And because the God of verse 5 saved him, he is able to manifest the things of verse 4. Verse 4 comes before verse 5 in the order in which we're reading it, but the reality of verse 5 comes before verse 4. When you can see God as the God of your, in this case, his salvation, he makes a difference in your life. And the difference is the things of verse 4. It's not the behaviors of verse 4 that gave them sufficient standing with God. It's their standing with God as Savior manifested by the things of verse 4 that enabled them confidently to ascend to his hill, stand in his presence, unafraid, and give him worship. The God of his salvation will bless him, and notice what it says, he will receive from him righteousness. The things of verse 4 are not his righteous offerings to win God's favor, because you can't be righteous enough. Isaiah, the Jewish prophet, says, all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. So those are not an offering of righteousness which will appease God. No. God has to give people righteousness as a gift before they can ascend confidently into his presence. Well, what is righteousness? It's not living rightly. It's not right living. It is right standing. How can you have right standing with an otherwise unapproachably God, uh, un unapproachably holy God, unless he gave it to you? And he does in verse 5. Notice, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God who saved him. You get right standing with God, not by offering him anything. It's filthy regs it doesn't stack up 
You get right standing with God when he becomes your Savior and you receive it. How do you ascend to the hill of the Lord? By going as a recipient, not as a giver. You don't ascend saying, oh, God, you're going to be, I know it's thrilling for you to see me today. I know you need me to be here. And my pockets are filled with all kinds of, we call them in Hebrew, mitzvot. My pockets are filled with all kinds of mitzvot. I gave money to the poor. I fasted. I did. Here we go. I can't wait to unload them on you so that you can give me right standing. No. The way you have confident access to Almighty God is to approach him as a needy pauper, a spiritually impoverished person with empty pockets, not pockets filled up with your own good deeds. And you go so empty that you're ready to receive right standing. Folks, that's the gospel in the Old Testament. That's the person who could stand boldly with God. So, uh, look, uh, you read 1 John, and in 1 John there's a whole lot of wonderful things that can tell you whether you're a Christian or not. Beyond you saying I'm a Christian. A lot of people say they're a Christian, meaning they're not a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Jew. But that doesn't make you a a reborn follower of Christ, just because you're not those other things. So how do you know whether you're really a Christian in truth? Well, read 1 John. And he'll point out some of the character, some of the evidences of what happens when one is changed by Christ, when one is converted. If you can identify with any one of the things listed by John in 1 John, then you are a Christian. Because not one of those can come from your natural self. One of them is a, is a love for the fellowship of believers. Can I tell you what a non-Christian thinks of the fellowship of believers? He wants nothing to do with them. I remember years ago when we had black and white TVs only and no remote controls and stuff like that, and my sisters and I would get in fights about whose turn it was to get up off the couch and change the channel. (laughs) So we'd get up to change it, and I remember one time it was my turn, and I clicked it, you know, and boom, there was Billy Graham. Man, I couldn't change the channel fast enough. I didn't want anything to do with this guy and who he is and what he's standing. I had no love for the brethren, no inclination to be one of them. I didn't even want them on my TV, invading my household. Come on, man. I'd switch to Looney Tunes or whatever they used to. <laughs> so, so if you find yourself inclined now in the direction of fellowship with like-minded Christians, you didn't come up with that. That's an evidence of God in you. A love for the word of God. I don't mean just to have it on the shelf. I mean to look to it as a, as a love letter, as a means of direction in life and so on. Harvey. Yeah. And not until I was saved did I know that I know 
that I know that I know, and that is an unshakable knowledge of where you stand with the Lord. See, this is and good. That understanding has to be given to us in the formula of faith plus obedience equals understanding. Uh, this is excellent. Uh, so well put. I'm sorry most of you didn't hear. <laughs> that can't come, as you said, from reading books. That is imparted, that knowledge of your, Harvey said, this knowledge, this, this certain sure knowledge of where you stand with God came to him, comes to the one who is truly converted. That's a sign, an indicator of rebirth. Now, if you have any one of those, since every one of those is an endowment, is a blessing, is given from on high, that g should give you assurance of your salvation. If you have none of that, then you're just going to church. A lot of people just go to church for whatever reason. I have no idea. So anyway, who can ascend to the... Now, you understand, though this is talking about the physical temple on a hill, we're really, really seeing this as a prefigurement of the ultimate temple on high, not made, not fashioned with hands. Who could ascend to the level of that heavenly temple wherein resides Almighty God, the one who who is not climbing in his own efforts and with his own merits, the one who has received blessing, the one who has received right standing, the one who has this God as personal savior. That's what's in view here. So if you're that person, do you know you're connected with every other person like you in every other place and time in human history? And you are referred to in verse 6. This is this, these who can ascend, these who have right standing with God. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob, Selah. What does that mean? Be careful. Oh, oh yeah, oh, that's right. I meant something else, but thank you for listening. <laughs> um, be careful when you read words in the Bible, they don't always mean the same thing. Context, context, context. When you think of the word generation, what is it, like 40 years generally? That's not what's in view here. Generation could also be used with reference of a, a group of people cross-generationally who have the same identity. This is talking about that generation of born-again ones who in every physical generation have sought the face of God and have been given by him right standing. And it e these are people, even if they're today people, who can uh, trace their connection, look, it says, even to Jacob. Jacob representing God's covenant people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In every age, there are those connected to that generation of those who've sought God, his merits, not one's own. These are ones who could go boldly and confidently into the very presence of God and worship him. Now, the music leader, the song leader, has just realized what they've been singing. And he says, Selah. You know what he's saying? We better take a break. Let's stop right here and take a couple deep breaths. It was a strategically placed musical interlude. He's saying, whoa, we're going up to be in the presence of the creator of the universe, 
the one who possesses not only the earth, but all it contains, including all the people. We're going to worship the one who created the world in the most unique, non-imitated way. He made that which is stable on a foundation of that which is unstable. We're going up to worship this God who we would have no capacity to stand before if he didn't give us as a blessing the blessing of righteousness. We have it for he is our savior. <gasps> Slow down, he says. Let's not take one other step. You know, that just told me I ought to do that before I come to church, you too. Before we get through the doors, when we're reaching the parking lot, we ought to remind ourselves why we're doing this. Why we've gotten out of bed, why we didn't sleep in as did most of our neighbors, why we're not going to mow the lawn uh, today. Um, you, you know, while we're, why we are going to, to, to look for a spot in this crowded parking lot on a nasty, cold, uh, dreary day today to sit next to people, some of whom we would never um, want to spend any time <laughs> with. Let's just face facts. Why are we dealing with all these crazy sound things and sometimes it's too hot in here, sometimes it's too cold in here? Why are we? Whoa. I'm stopping to make myself and my attentiveness as an offering to the God who gave me from on high the capacity to be rightly related to him. I'm going to worship the God who alone had the power to say, let there be, boom, and the earth was. I'm going to worship the God who has ownership over me since he's the one who created me. I did not generate myself. I'm going to worship the God in whose presence I could not stand on my own merits, but who has released to me the capacity to be rightly related because he's my savior. That's why I'm going to church. Today, interestingly, people are questioning the reason. That's okay. Here's the answer. You go up from the mundane of life. You ascend uh, with a gathering of like-minded people to offer worship and praise to the God who transcends it all and yet who came near to be your Savior. And he said, would you do what's pleasing to me for a change since you are not your own? And he said, I don't want you to forsake your assembly together. If you're your own, you can make your own decisions. Is this a good day to go? Is that a good day to go? You don't have to. You mean you could be a Christian without going? Sure you could. Sure you could. But why would you even want to think in those terms? If the Christ who you identify with says, I want you to come together. I want you to collectively gather together. I want you to carve out the time. I want you to remind yourselves who I am. I'm pleased when my kids show up. So we don't go to church to, oh, I didn't hear my song. I didn't, but I don't like the way that guy's dressed. It's okay. We're entitled to those things, but that has nothing to do with anything. Not. Do you think the people going up in an assembly to the temple in Jerusalem all got along? One guy said, man, that guy smells. <laughs> One guy said, what would you bring your bratty kid for? I can't even concentrate. 
Keep your kid quiet. One guy's bringing his animal. Who knows? One guy's expressing himself crazy, overt way. He's going to smack me in the face. Put your hands down already. One guy's dancing. You're dancing. What are you talking about? Hey, David, dance. Yeah. Thanks for chiming in, <laughs> Brenda. <laughs> I mean, you got all kinds of... Then you say, ah, oh, look, there's this old lady in front of me. She's walking with a cane. I, she needs to get... I'm, I'm not going to get my seat. You don't think they went through that stuff? Sure they did. Why do you go? Because you remind yourself of verse 1. You sing it. <gasps> the earth is the Lord's. All it contains. And the people therein, including that crying kid and that old lady who's going painfully slow and this guy who smells and the guy who's dancing. He doesn't have rhythm. He's dancing. And the people waves in their hands are going to knock my yarmulke off. There's nothing to do with all that. The reason for gathering together is, is verse 1. So, so he, this guy's overwhelmed. He says, oh, let me take a deep breath. Selah. Then look. Verses 7 to 10. I'm going to finish here real quick because I know Luby's waits. Um, there are things repeated in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. So this has nothing to do with anything, but I just want to say it because... I just want to. <laughs> Some people here make fun of praise choruses with repetitive words. Why? Isn't the issue is whether the words are true? I mean, why even sing something once if it's not true, let alone repeat it? But if it's true, and it's repeated three, four, five times, why not 25 times? So some here, because they don't like a certain fashion of music, justify their position by putting it down. Why don't you just say you don't like it? That's okay. The other side does the same thing. They put down the, the uh, traditional hymns of our faith with magnificent lyrics. Why don't, they, why don't you just say I don't like those? Okay, <laughs> cool. The issue is not whether you like it or not. The issue is does it please God? Does it honor him? Does it express biblical truth? If it's not palatable to my ear, I have a right to say so. But I don't have to justify it by demonizing it. Devil's music, rock and roll. What are you talking about? So here you've got repetition. You know, to even make fun, seven, what do you call it, 7-Eleven? 7-Eleven songs, seven... Seven words, 11 times. And I say, why not 111 times? You know, it's a lyrical device. You see it all through the Psalms. You know why? We're thick-skulled. And repetition has a chance of penetrating our thick skull so it comes to be part of us so that during the week it'll pop into our mind and we sing it. Look, you're stuck in Houston traffic. You're on the verge of road rage. You want to kill someone. Thank God you heard a chorus 15 times. <laughs> it sticks in your mind. And you sing it instead of shooting somebody. What's the problem with repetition? Repetition is a device. It helps you memorize it. So some people say it's meaningless repetition. It's not meaningless at all. I can't tell you how many times things pop into my mind. Now with me, it's hymns, because that's what I was raised on. I may not know the, the whole hymn, but the choruses of the hymns pop into my mind at the most wonderfully convenient times, and that's my preference. I'm used to it. My ear is attuned to That's how I grew. 
So I, that's meaningful to me. I have quiet times out of a hymn book. I'm used to it. But when I go into that service, I'm not going to put it down. Are you kidding me? There's nothing to do with me. Sing praises to God. Sing it 140 times. It's better than who knows what else is out there for crying out loud. What if it's louder than I'm used to? Who cares? They bang drums and cymbals and dance and do all the... Co- I mean, if you want traditional liturgical music, then I expect everyone to bring their tambourine next week and don't take your seat because we're doing circle dances in here, my fellow Baptist, thou shalt not dance. <laughs> so let's give uh, people a break. Of, okay, all that to say... <laughs> uh, okay, fine. Calm down now. (laughs) You got some repetition here. Look, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Well, as if we didn't sing it. Here's verse 7 again. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And as if we didn't already hear it, here's verse 8 again. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. (sighs) Now, some people say, I'm one of them, but you don't have to buy this, that the immediate historical context of this psalm is when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to Jerusalem. It was in the hands of the Philistines for seven months. It's brought back to Jerusalem. What is the ark? It's a box, wood, covered with gold. What's so special? It represented the presence and power of God. Some people say, the ark of the covenant is coming to Jerusalem. Lift up your gates. This is the representation of the king of glory entering through the gates. And then people say, and on top of it, that would be a prefigurant of the Lord's triumphal entry through the gates of Jerusalem on the day we know as, know as Palm Sunday. And then others would say, and even better, even that is a prefigurement of the time when the Lord Jesus will return, not humble and mounted on a donkey, but in the clouds of heaven with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and all that kind of stuff. And he will enter through the gates of Jerusalem, not mounted on a donkey, but recognized by all as King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah is right. And that will be a great day indeed. Now listen. Psalm 22, we covered a few weeks back. Remember we said it's a psalm of crucifixion and resurrection? If that's the case, keep track of the order. This, then, is a psalm of victory. After crucifixion, after resurrection, there is ascension. And by the way, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Nobody except those who by faith are connected to the one who ascended already. He was crucified, he was buried, he rose up from death. Witnesses saw him physically ascend, and the Father said, Welcome home. You have fulfilled my will perfectly on behalf of all others, and based on the merits of Christ who ascended as first fruits, all of us who come after We boldly can ascend to the hill of the Lord, wherein is the temple not made with hands, 
on the merits of Christ, who is our righteousness. He is our right standing. He is the Savior. So this follows the psalm of crucifixion and resurrection. This is the psalm of victorious ascension on the merits of Christ. Pretty cool stuff, huh? You think David knew all this? No. He, he had partial awareness of things. Uh, God is showing us that he is building, building, showing us in, uh, in embryonic form truths in the Old Testament which will be born to fruition in the New Testament. He's showing us our redemption is not an afterthought. He's showing us everything is connected in accordance with God's redemptive plan. He's showing us the physical representation of things in the Old Testament gives way to spiritual realities now. There isn't a temple, you are the temple. We don't go up to a particular hill. We are resurrected and we ascend into heaven to the real holy place on the merits of the high priest, the Lord Jesus, who has given us right standing. They can't appreciate all that until you see none of it's an afterthought. It's not on impulse. God orchestrated it from before time. Notice how the two covenants, old and new, are pulled together through the person of Christ. Look for him. In every page of the Bible, even the book of Leviticus, don't shy away from it. <laughs> everything, everything. He's the linchpin of Old and New Testaments. Old Testament looks forward to him, and now we look back to him. He's the centerpiece uh, of it all. We can see him prefigured all through the Psalms, and then we see the fulfillment later on in the New Testament as well. I'm ascending to heaven. I'm not arrogant about it. I have holes with pockets. No good thing dwells in me. I make no claim to merit or righteousness. I'm ascending because I'm connected to the one, the righteous one who has fulfilled the law on my behalf and has already ascended for me and is ready to bring me home. That's what it means to be a Christian. I hope you are one. Otherwise, you have to say, how could I ever stand in the presence of God who is a consuming fire? What will give me access to him? Only the Son of God. If you haven't accepted the Son of God as your personal Savior, you may attend church but you're not connected to the creator of the world because you can only be connected through the Son, the Lord Jesus. And there aren't any options. There are no local gods. Choose your preference. I like Mohammed. I'm interested in Buddha. How about Moses? How about worshiping the earth? How about the words of Jesus? I am the way and the truth, and the life, and nobody can come to the Father. You can't ascend to him, but by me. Crystal clear. If you have the Son, there ought to be evidence. If you see the evidence, then you can say, I'm ascending, and I can't wait.
So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming down and for going up so that we can go up with you. Though we have been debased by our sin, we can be raised up by righteousness, which you possess inherently and are willing to give us as a blessing. We do not stand on our own merits. We stand before the Father on the merits of the Son. Thank you for imputing righteousness to our side of the ledger so that we're no longer debtors. We who believe are sons and daughters. And we can't wait for the time when we see you face to face. And when we're with you forever in that temple, not made with hands, indestructible, fit for eternity. This is a day we long for. Until that happens, Lord Jesus, remind us of the privilege of gathering together as a community of indebted and worshipful people who are pleased to be called by your name to come out of the world into the church to let people know whose side we are on. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. If you feel like coming next week, if it's convenient, if there's nothing on TV, if the weather is good, I'll see you next week.